I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. What I want the world to know is that uh, Russia violates uh, all possible norms uh, of uh, how to, uh, to handle war, how to behave. Because uh, their army uses, for example, vacuum bombs to attack residential areas, kindergartens, hospitals, universities, uh, medical aid centers. It's against, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's against any international laws, conventions, agreements, beyond everything. Those are the moving and powerful words Avoya Poluchovich, my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. Hoya, who spoke to me on Thursday, March 3rd, 2022, from somewhere near Kiev, is a writer, philosopher, and professor of humanities at Ukraine's oldest university. Joining us from Boston is Askold Melnichuk. He's a founding member of Writers for Democratic Action, He's an acclaimed novelist and short story writer, and he's also the co-editor of From Three Worlds, an anthology of Ukrainian writers. Watching everything in the news right now, uh, so many of us feel powerless uh, in, in being able to do anything. And I took stock of what it is that I could possibly do, and I thought that I would try to use this podcast, this podcast, The Literary Life, to bring some clarity or try to bring some clarity to the situation that all of us in this country, uh, we've all been, you know, kind of glued to and watching and watching these heartbreaking images and, and these hearing these heartbreaking stories. And as I thought about what to do on the podcast, uh, there was only one person that popped to mind. And and that's uh, Askold, Askold Melnichuk. And uh, I've known Askold from working with him 
on Writers for Democratic Action. I know him as a writer, as a uh, kind of, we were born around the same time we discovered and a fellow traveler through history, you might say. And so let me kind of turn it over to Askold and ask him before we get started, uh, just what are your personal ties to Ukraine? Um, thanks. Um, thanks so much, Mitch, uh, for hosting us here and for allowing this um, important conversation to, to take place. And also profoundly grateful to uh, my friend, Dr. Oja Poljuhovich um, outside Kyiv for being able to join us um, here. I know that she's coming to us from extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And uh, I am very eager to hear what she will kind of update she will offer us. But I was born in New Jersey um, to uh, Ukrainian refugees. Um, they were uh, not immigrants, but refugees. That is to say that they left because they had to, not because they wanted to. And, you know, therein lies the difference. Um, my grandfather was a, a high school teacher in a Ukrainian women's high school in Peremyshev, Poland, um, from the 20s into the mid 40s. Uh, he uh, he was actually, he had studied um, art and art history at the University of Vienna and was ABD from there. Um, when he found his vocation as a teacher, um, he was also a social activist. He started museums and choirs and that kind of thing. And so he was very committed and engaged to his community. His brother was in fact the um, a Ukrainian representative to, uh, Vienna, to the Viennese parliament in Austria, and then later to the Polish uh, parliament um, after Austria-Hungary collapsed. And so again, they were a very engaged family. Um, during the war, um, he uh, was at that point older, and as I say, was teaching, um, and uh, still involved with pro-Ukrainian activities. Uh, you know, and, and like like many people from that part of the world, he was um, half Polish, half Ukrainian. Uh, uh, men in that world, part of the world chose their father's sort of ethnic identity. Women uh, followed their mother, so his so his sister was Polish and he was Ukrainian. Um, he he, uh, he was also, as I say, a very a teacher, very devoted to his students. And um, one night in uh, 1943, there was a knock on the door at midnight, and it turned out to be a, a, a former student of his, a Jewish student named Edek Scheffler, who had, uh, he, uh, along with his wife, had just escaped from the ghetto uh, by lying on a wagon load of corpses um, and then kind of falling off them at the right moment and appearing at the doorstep um, in around midnight. Um, um, my grandfather, uh, consulted with his three children, including a seven-year-old, and uh, um, they agreed immediately to take the, the Schefflers in. My uncle spent a night building a, a, a secret room in the pantry for them, and uh, for the next nine months, they lived there together. Um, uh, and, and then um, when the kind of communists rolled into town, my uh, grandfather heard that he was on a hit list. And so when I read in the Times um, uh, or was it the post a, a week ago that apparently the Russians had a hit list of people they were going to um, kill or arrest. It struck a <laughs> profound chord uh, and um, triggered a series of connections and memories. Um, why does someone leave their a town they love, a place they want to stay in, except... <laughs> With, because they have to, because somebody's after them. So anyway, that's the very kind of, that's the longer version that I intended to offer of why my parents fled. Uh, they spent five 
years in a refugee camp in Germany well, as they sought for a place that would take them in and uh, finally got a sponsor in the States, came, to, came here, wound up in New Jersey and uh, were so determined to come back that they refused to uh, let my sister and myself speak any English until I went to school. Uh, and so my first language was Ukrainian. It was something that was a burden and something I hated for, for many years because it created a sense of difference and uh, a wall between me and my peers. Um, eventually that wall kind of, uh, uh, I discovered that there was a doorway in that wall and that doorway was the language itself. And it, it had um, my relationship to it changed as I grew older. I uh, discovered that I was able to speak to people that many people did not know and was able to offer a perspective on history that most people did not have. And um, it's it's for that reason that I've come to know Olya um, Polyukovic. Uh, Dr. Polyukovic, again, thank you so much for being here with us. Can you speak a little bit about what this last week has been like? Oh, uh, yeah. Hello from Ukraine to everyone. Thanks for having me here. Uh, okay, this, this is the eighth year of war that how we call this time in Ukraine. And it feels really like ages. Uh, what Ukrainians uh, do this time, they do not eat, they uh, do not sleep. Uh, they are, nevertheless, they resist and they try to help uh, in each possible uh, way. Uh, I think Ukrainians uh, feel now uh, much different than the rest of the world. When I read the news or hear the news uh, from abroad, uh, uh, I see like Ukrainian crisis, Ukrainian conflict, Ukrainian-Russia conflict, vice versa. Uh, it's not a conflict, it's war. And uh, you won't persuade me uh, otherwise because for a person who woke up hearing uh, loudest bomb explosions, in a peaceful uh, city in my country, waking up, and since then I could not, I cannot sleep, and uh, that's how Ukrainians feel. Uh, when I, uh, when we went away from Kiev, uh, I've heard bomb explosions behind me, uh, and uh, it's not a conflict, believe me. When a neighbor comes to your house with weapons to kill you. Uh, not invited. It's not a conflict and it's not a crisis for sure. Uh, it's war and it's how we uh, feel actually since uh, 2014 uh, when uh, Russia uh, attacked eastern borders of Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And uh, since uh, 2014, uh, we have uh, 14,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers killed. Uh, it's not a conflict, it's war. We lost 13% of our territory. Of the, can you imagine, Ukraine is an independent, sovereign U European country. Uh, I mean here in the uh, Eastern uh, regions and uh, Crimea annexation uh, also. Uh, so, and now uh, this war is in its active phase. Uh, for uh, eight days uh, of war, Russian army, which was considered to be the greatest army in the world, something like that, I don't know, uh, it did not gain 
any strategic object in Ukraine right now, any major city. Uh, Ukrainian army is the greatest in the world right now and the bravest one. Uh, and we are deeply grateful to the armed forces uh, of Ukraine who uh, protect us. And this is the reason I am speaking to you right now, due to the Ukrainian army. Uh, people uh, in Ukraine, they are helping uh, in each possible way, how they can. Uh, even uh, what touched me, uh, people with disabilities, they are, they are not sitting at home hiding from uh, like, you know, bombs. They are doing Molotov cocktails to protect their country. And uh, also probably you have seen this uh, touching videos uh, in Energodar, uh, Ukrainian city. Uh, thousands of people armless, barehanded uh, with Ukrainian flags they went to the road to meet Russian tank and they stopped it. They said, okay, we will come back at uh, 3 p.m. So this is incredible, this is inspiring. Uh, though uh, I also cannot mention about uh, uh, at least uh, 2000 killed uh, civilians, including children. And what is happening now, uh, people, uh, people are living in shelters, in the basements. Uh, hospitals are moving also there. And uh, when you see these devastating pictures uh, of uh, uh, children with oncological diseases and they need medicine, they need treatment, they are living in the basement. And women, they are giving birth in the basement, a newborn are living right now there in the bomb shelters in the basement because now it's the safest place in Ukraine. Uh, and many more. What, what I would want you, to, what I want the world to know is that uh, Russia violates uh, all possible norms uh, of uh, how to uh, to handle war, how to behave, because. Uh, uh, their army uses, for example, vacuum bombs to attack residential areas, kindergartens, hospitals, universities, uh, medical aid centers. It's against, uh, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's against any international laws, conventions, agreements, beyond everything. Uh, even I, I don't know how to reflect on this on this fact that Russian troops taking a white flag riding across the neighbor and kill civilians under white flag. So how can you believe Russians after that? I don't know how they are going to live further with this stigma, with this evil, knowing that their soldiers did such things and we here in Ukraine, we collect this evidence and the world has a right to know about the crimes Russia did. Well, I think there's, there's certainly the horror of this and, and Putin as a war criminal, we're all hoping that he will get his due. The, the, 
it's a devastating portrait that you paint. What would you like, what could be done more than what is being done now from your perspective? What would you like to see the world be doing? Uh, the Ukrainians are very, very grateful for uh, each gesture of support, uh, moral, material, financial, any. And we really feel the support uh, of the whole world. But what is essential now is uh, to create a no-fly zone over Ukraine so that Russian place, uh, planes uh, could not uh, get into Ukraine, could not throw bombs, could, could not kill uh, innocent people, civilians, Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, it's very important because uh, you know uh, uh, why, why this is important. In 1984, uh, Ukraine signed the Budapest Agreement and it dropped its nuclear weapons uh, in a guarantee of peace on its territory. And Ukraine got this guarantee from Russia, UK, and the US. Uh, and uh, it, it looks like that uh, Ukraine really was uh, betrayed in Budapest. Because what we see now, uh, NATO uh, does not close uh, sky over uh, Ukraine. And it's very bad. Uh, it can be... Uh, devastating consequences, not only for Ukraine, but for the whole world. I will explain you why. Uh, Ukraine, on its territory, Ukraine has uh, several acting nuclear plants and other strategic objects. And if Russia just randomly throw the bombs across Ukraine, uh, it can reach uh, these uh, objects and we will have global ecological catastrophe. Uh, probably you know that right now, Russia uh, invaded uh, the Chernobyl nuclear plant, yeah? And they uh, took the workers as a hostage there. Uh, and the level of radiation is high in that area because of Russians' activity there right now. And, and uh, of course, uh, we know uh, about the global catastrophe, the explosion uh, on the Chernobyl nuclear station in 1986. It was at the time when Ukraine was a part of the USSR, when Ukraine was a part of the Russian world. And they are trying to get back uh, these times, uh, which is why uh, we urge NATO, the world, uh, we are trying to convince you to create no-fly zone over Ukraine. Because if Ukraine will lose now, uh, the next uh, will be other countries of Europe. You should understand this. Yes. Uh, Russia is not interested in Ukraine. Yes. It is that's... interested in the whole world. Come on, guys, it's not about Ukraine. Um, um, Olya, could you say something about your own circumstances? You know, I've been, I was um, saying to Mitch that I have been, I'd been in touch with people uh, from Cave 
pretty regularly. And then in the last day or so, suddenly the communications have stopped and many people have finally decided that they needed to leave. And um, so we're not kind of getting the kind of word I was getting out from friends who are members of Ukrainian PEN, for instance. Um, I, you know, there are friend, mutual friends that you and I have there. There, there are people like the poet Sidhi Jadan, one of Ukraine's and Europe's most celebrated and revered poets. Um, and a bona fide rock star who, last I heard, was still on the streets of Kharkiv, a city that is being severely sort of shelled. And uh, uh, could, you, could you give us any kind of update about that? And, and first of all, tell us about how, how you are and your family is. Uh, uh, okay, uh, I don't hear uh, the uh, explosions of bombs and uh, uh, I'm more or less safe. I'm with my family here. Uh, about Kyiv, Russians are desperate about Kyiv. They want to capture Kyiv. They are attacking from different uh, sides. Uh, I could not tell you that in detail because, you know, it's, uh, it's a rule of wartime. We learn it right now. But what I can say uh, you is that when they did not manage to capture Kyiv, they heavily attacked Kharkiv. Kharkiv is a former uh, capital of Ukraine, a large city, the city of universities, of colleges, of school, there are so many international students there and they cannot get out of Kharkiv. And uh, one of the Indian international students was killed when he was just standing in a line to get some food. And it's, it's devastating because some of them under ruins, uh, they, need to, they, they needed to be rescued. Uh, Russians, uh, they are doing horrible, horrible things. They ruined uh, the square of freedom in Kharkiv. This is the biggest square in Europe, in the whole Europe. Uh, what, what they ruined else? They ruined uh, the, um, the biggest aircraft uh, plane, Mriya or Dream. This plane uh, carried humanitarian aid all over uh, all over the world. And when I wrote about this event, my, my friend from Japan said this, this plane rescued thousands of lives carrying humanitarian supplies to Japan after earthquake uh, in March uh, 2011. Yeah. Uh, Kyiv is standing, Kyiv is struggling, very heavily struggling. Uh, it's defending itself itself, uh, the same for Kharkiv and uh, for other cities and towns in, in Ukraine. Yes, you know, I think one of the things you underscore, and it's been, and, and Mitch, you also mentioned this, and it's been so impressive, is um, the, your uh, um, wise um, insistence on pointing out the valor of the people, the courage that people are showing everywhere, that kind of determination of, to fight for um, something that matters to you with your whole life. Um, and that's profoundly moving for us. And I totally agree with you that the no-fly zone is the essential thing that needs to happen right now. Um, there, I, I believe that supplies are on the way. 
And I think that what we want to do is encourage everybody who's listening to call their Congress people, their senators, and urge them to uh, restrict airspace over Ukraine immediately. I mean, I think that is an essential next move. I think I think artists and writers and people here in the United States are gathering in order to convey that message to people who will listen. And I know that Askold, you have a program that's happening. I think it's tomorrow night, if I'm not mistaken. It's it, it's um yeah uh, thanks Mitch. It is um a pen sponsored program. Uh, Voices of Ukraine, readings in support of Ukraine that's happening actually um, tomorrow afternoon from two to four. And I'm gonna post a link to it in the chat right now. Um, it is a, a, a gathering of both Ukrainian and American writers, people like Carolyn Forche and Richard Ford and Paul Oster and Siri Hustved um, and, and Jill McCorkle and you know, a, a number of our mutual friends and um, a, a 10 poets from Ukraine, including their leading uh, writers, Oksana Zabushko, Serhii Shadan, and a number of younger writers, all uh, Mariana, Mariana Savka, all of whom are going to try to be there live. The, you know, what we're all very worried about is whether they will be live um, and whether communications will uh, allow this to happen. But it's uh, taking place tomorrow from two to four um, Eastern Standard Time, obviously adjust for yourself. That's gonna be um, nine to 11 um, uh, in Ukraine time. I may, can I just also float one other kind of question and an idea um, uh, to, to, to both of you. Uh, my own sort of sense is while, while economic sanctions you know, have been put in place, uh, we all know they take a long time to work and you know, I have this sort of very bloodless solution. I mean, I don't know that it would work, but I don't see why we wouldn't try it. Um, is it not possible to seize the assets of every Putin-supporting oligarch in the West, um, and not only theirs but also their families, and perhaps deport them? Um, I mean, apparently, a quarter of all the luxury housing in London is now in Russian hands. Um, the, 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 the tragedy of this is that there have been, you know, in Ukraine, what's remarkable is that I think writers are the acknowledged legis legislators of the world. They have been speaking about this for years, um, and we have simply have not listened. Um, our mutual friend, um, Oksana Zabushko, um, gave this, you know, searing definition of power. Um, power is, um, have, is deciding what you can, uh, what you want to ignore. Power is choosing uh, to ignore what you don't want to hear. Um, and we have not wanted to hear um, that there is a war that's been going on for eight years, that European solidarity has been deliberately undermined by Russian money, Russian cells. Um, I have heard that there have been sleeper cells all over Europe and uh, all over Ukraine, which is why there have been these surprising attacks even in the Western parts of the country. Those are you know, really caught me by surprise. Um, there are so many brave individuals, um, as well as the collective, that you know I want to call attention to Kate Surkin in, Cher in, in, in Chernivtsi, um, uh, a, an American uh, doctoral student from NYU who moved there almost uh, on a whim and, and fell in love with the place and decided to stay, has been amplifying voices from there. Um, all, you know, there's that wonderful line in Death of a Salesman, attention must be paid. Um, and I think that the paying of attention is the first step toward uh, 
the kind, taking the kinds of actions that can transform the situation. Nothing is fixed, nothing is promised, nothing is finished. Um, this is unfolding and we can intervene still and prevent an even worse tragedy from unfolding. Um, and I, I think the profound message that you've given uh, Professor, which is something that we all must think about who live here in the United States, is that it is, this is not just a conflict. This is a war. And it's been a war that's been going on. And it's a very hot war right now. And we have to approach it as if it's that. And we are watching basically an unhinged man unleash his power across Europe for no given reason, really. Or no, you know, he comes up with these crazy, irrational reasons that don't make any sense. But there's only one thing behind all of it, and that is the quest for power. And, and we've, a lot of us have fallen into a kind of naivete where we believe that treaties will hold, that we believe some people think he's a rational actor, but we're seeing an act of irrationality going on that must be stopped. And uh, that is becomes the big question. And I saw last night, Ambassador McFall, who's I think a very, very smart person on all of this, you know, who's even saying that some of the sanctions that we have done in this country aren't strong enough. So, you know, when, you know, all of Russia's banks are not out of SWIFT, it's only six banks out of hundreds. So I think there's even more that we can do in terms of sanctions, but the urgency of it is what I hope that listeners will get out of this. This is an extremely urgent situation when a million people are on the move. It's the largest, the largest, uh, the largest movement exodus of people out of a country, I think, since World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it is, it's astonishing. What I also know that you are, you are a, you're a teacher, you're a professor. What effect has this been having on your students? What is going on with them? Have they all scattered at this point? Uh, okay, uh, yeah. So uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, students were uh, studying online for two years because of the pandemic. So yeah, they, they went to the classrooms just for weeks, for a couple of weeks, and then they uh, came back to online format. And now uh, they are witnessing uh, all this. Uh, of course, they uh, do not uh, learn right now. They do not go to schools, to universities, uh, to colleges. Uh, what they are doing, uh, some of the students are joining the armed forces of Ukraine. Uh, others uh, are helping in, in the way they can help. Uh, I know many of them are volunteering. Uh, they are collecting supplies, uh, 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 doing fundra fundraising. Uh, they are uh, also <laughs> uh, take care of themselves, of their relatives, of their family, of their pets, who also hear this loud explosions uh, and uh, and uh, the students uh, they they are showing uh, courage uh, they are uh, some of them are at war and the, on the um, uh, information space because russian propaganda is really very strong 
and we have to resist or we have to send our messages. Uh, students uh, understand the situation uh, very well. Uh, they stand uh, and they help uh, as hard as they can do because uh, no one wants here uh, Russians to, to be on our land. And uh, it's, it's, they, they do not complain. They do not do that. If you could give a message to the Russian people, uh, not Putin, but the average normal Russian person, what would that message be? What would you like to see happen in Russia right now? Uh, uh, it, it, it's hard to say. Uh, these days, I'm thinking about uh, my uh, family, my friends all over Ukraine. Uh, I don't think about Russian its people, but uh, uh, and you see, there were so many rallies uh, all over the world uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian state. Have you seen uh, those events made by Russia all well, over the world? No. The reason why the reason why that is why I brought it up. Because one of the things that Ambassador McFall said, and also, um, uh, you know, Russian prisoners have been saying is that if, if the Russians were to rise up, hundreds of thousands of Russians were to rise up, they couldn't all possibly be arrested. And I think that's what we need to see. We need to see that kind of resistance in Russia as well, which, you know, we have it uh, as of now. Well, uh, yes, uh, um, if I may, uh, Russians, uh, they should resist. And speaking about international students, if they, uh, if they do not uh, protest, I mean, they should protest uh, because they, if they uh, won't be protesting now, they won't have a place where to go, where to come back because uh, economical collapse of their country is inevitable. It will be extremely, uh, it, they, they would not have a place where to go. They should understand this. They won't just, it, it won't just pass by. So, yeah, you know, and of course we know one of the, re one of the reasons that um, they're uh, not mass protests, I suspect, is because as you mentioned earlier of the disinformation, the fact is that, that many people are being, uh, the Russian population is being fed a very different narrative by Putin. Um, and then those who have access to and know better have tried to uh, demonstrate and of course have been arrested because again, an important um, note here is that one of the key differences between Ukraine and Russia is that Ukraine is a democratic state. It is a state with free speech. It is a state with freedom of worship. It is a state with, um, you know, you, 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 you can call um, the president an asshole and not be arrested and thrown in jail for it. Um, in Russia, it's rather the opposite. Um, as we know from the case of the, the most celebrated case of Alex Navalny, but also thousands of other political prisoners that are languishing there. The great kind of thing that I worry about is because this is going to be, uh, it's because this is going to take a while um, to resolve, though I absolutely believe that it will end with Ukraine standing and Russia crumbling. Um, it, it is, um, is what Robert J. Lifton um, called uh, the malignant normal, um, that, that we begin to grow comfortable and accustomed to the situation, that we normalize war, 
Now, Lifton used that phrase, as Peter Balakian reminded me, um, about our own uh, malignancy, Donald Trump, uh, the fact that we were already becoming accustomed to his grotesque behavior. Um, the risk is that we begin to grow accustomed to these scenes of war. We can't, we dare not, that is our, you know, a moral imperative that we keep recognizing the human life, the human cost behind every one of these photographs. Well, you know, I, well, the first time I visited Ukraine uh, was uh, while it was still a Soviet state in 1990. Um, I've watched it evolve and flourish. When I was there in 1990, um, I, I still have a photograph of a shoe store that had one pair of boots in it and that was it. The last time I was there in 2017, um, you know, Cave was being called the Paris of the East. Um, it was a flourishing, um, gorgeous, <laughs> uh, exuberant city uh, where people were uh, happy to show physical affection to each other on the streets, the kind of thing that I associate in our country with the 60s and something you know, we haven't seen since uh, um, the summer of love here. Um, it was that kind of a spirit, you know, uh, and it was remarkable. And all of that has now been set back. You know, I, I keep hearing um, an echo of Yeats's lines, all things fall and are built again. And those who build them again are gay. Um, and that's the spirit of gayness um, that we are seeing in the spirit of the Ukrainian people now. Yes. And, you know, some of the most heartbreaking scenes are, and, and interviews are with people who have talked about how this last week, not to mention the last eight years, have embittered them and changed them and made them, some of that gayness that you talk about has disappeared. Ola, what is your biggest fear? What is the biggest fear that you that you have now? I mean, I, I we certainly I, I I believe as Askol believes that Ukraine will stand, but in the short term, what is the big fear that you that nags at you all the time? Yeah, uh, Ukraine will stand and Ukraine will win. The question is uh, at what cost? Thousands. Uh, of innocent people to be killed or millions. That's all. And it depends not only uh, on Ukraine right now, but on the whole world too. Okay. Yeah. With, with your uh, call for the no-fly zone, with your ear to the ground there, uh, what do some of your contemporaries and the people that you're in touch with, what do they feel are the chances for that? What are you, what, you know, what can you report to us as to what you're hearing? Uh, you mean regarding no-fly zone over Ukraine? No, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, uh, I, I track the situation and the Ukrainians uh, do. Uh, it was a petition, online petition, uh, which collected uh, the necessary number of voices and uh, it should be taken in consideration right now. In the US, they uh, uh, call their uh, officials, uh, write applications, uh, uh, persuading them uh, to, to push this question, uh, urging them to do that. So uh, we are moving in that direction and I hope we will succeed. What can listeners do in order to put pressure on our own government for that? It's, 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 it's what, you know, um, we always need to do when we see an injustice uh, committed 
Um, and it's straightforward and it's simple. It takes almost no time at all. Call your Congress people, call your senators, call the White House. All that information is so easily available and it takes a minute and one sort of thinks that it does nothing, but indeed public pressure is a real thing. Uh, we are still a democracy here, may we remain so. Um, we are only that as long as people act like they live in a democracy and take responsibility for where they live. It's simple as that. Um, you know, and, and I think the lesson for those of us, quote, in the comfortable confines of this country, we can uh, talk to you all and understand that in a matter of a day, everything can change, right? In a matter of one day, your world is upended, uh, completely upended. And that is a lesson that so many of us who live in this country have become kind of complacent about and that we no longer can be complacent about it, given what we've lived through over the last four years and what you're going through now. Um, what are your immediate plans? Do you, are, are, do you have some immediate plans that you're working on, Olna? Are you gonna, uh, are you gonna try to bring family members out of the country? You're gonna stay in the country? What, uh, what are you looking to do? Uh, okay. Uh, I, I'm staying in Ukraine. I'm not going to go uh, abroad. Uh, I keep in touch with my family, with my friends uh, all over Ukraine. Uh, I support them as much as I can do. Uh, I'm volunteering. Uh, my family, they are in the territorial defense units. We are ready. Uh, we are preparing. Uh, not going to go abroad right now. But, uh, what also concerns me here, uh, you asked Mitch about the fears. Uh, I remember 2014, the revolution of dignity in Ukraine when President Yanukovych was suspended from Ukraine. And now Russia is trying to get him back to Ukraine as a legitimate leader. It's nonsense, of course, but uh, during the Revolution of Dignity, uh, hundreds of Ukrainians, peaceful protesters, were killed uh, by the state forces. Uh, I think with uh, and and Russia was uh, was collaborator of Russia because uh, Yanukovych was pro-Russian president. And uh, you know, it's uh, I I, I, I could not I, I could not understand then how it could happen that in U European capital, just 100 innocent citizens, civilians could be just killed and nothing happens, nothing, just nothing. And Russia saw that and it annexed our Crimea. Uh, it launched the war on our Eastern borders of the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, regions known as Donbass. Cause the evil was not punished. And if we get back to the history of uh, Ukrainian Russian relations, we can see the same. Uh, who is responsible for Holodomor the great famine in Ukraine of uh, 1933, when millions of innocent Ukrainian peasants 
were killed by hunger, by Stalin, by Russians, or uh, mass executions of Ukrainian intelligentsia during Stalin's Great Terror of 1937. Who punished that? The world did not condemn these crimes by Stalin. And Putin now continues because the, uh, the world leg legitimizes these crimes because it's okay. It's genocide of Ukrainian people now by Russia. And, uh, and for me, the biggest, the biggest fear is that uh, now evil is in indifference of ordinary people, what is going on in Ukraine. But it's not 2014. We will not forget this and we will not forgive this. And the world will see the true face, the true Russian face. I can't tell you how meaningful it is for us to be talking to you today and, and your, your call to action and your comments and your perspective, I hope will have a great, great effect. And we will do all we can, I know, to get the word out as broadly and widely as possible. If those of us who are listening to this want to do something directly, uh, what can we do? Uh, Ukraine uh, now is a shield uh, for the whole world uh, against uh, uh, the evil. And if you want to, to help us, you can really do, you can donate uh, to the armed forces of uh, Ukraine. Uh, they have uh, PayPal and uh, there is an organization, uh, Razum for Ukraine or uh, Come Back Alive, Povernesia Zhivim in Ukrainian. So you can easily uh, donate and uh, support Ukrainian army and make your contribution to our common victory. Thank you. We will do that. And Askold, I know you already have, right? I, I have. And, and again, as I, um, I, I want to stress that one of the things that I love about Azom and that's so appropriate for us, you know, and for you, Mitch, you know, um, our, our common love of books and faith in them. The, this particular organization was started by the poet Sehi Jadan, um, who is uh, a poet and rock star and street fighting man who is on the streets in Kharkiv even now. Um, and he has a very lively and effective organization that channels the money where it needs to go. Um, I trust it entirely. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time in the midst of this tragedy to be speaking to me and to Askold. I thank you, Askold, for bringing us together. Uh, this, I don't, I can't remember a time where I have felt um, such sense of, of uh, such a bond, such a sense of compassion, and such a sense of a brother and sisterhood with you. And uh, I just want you to know that that our love, our hopes, our determination is with you. If we could transfer it through this screen, I would do all that I could to transfer it. And I want to say, Mitch, again, thank you so very much. Um, you, we all feel that heart, um, and we're all deeply grateful to it. Um, Oyha, you know, thank you again so much, and we will keep staying in touch. You know, uh, and and uh, again, strength and courage to you and your family. You all, you also have your stories.
to tell. And we'd love to have a fuller conversation where we get to hear the, the source of all these bonds sometime. Thank you.